The Time Lords are an immensely civilized race. We can control our environment. We can live forever, barring accidents. And we have the secret of the Doctor Who podcast. And welcome to a special episode of the Doctor Who Podcast. The file you've downloaded is part of our 50th episode celebration week. And uh, we were looking for an interesting way to actually celebrate this, uh, well, mildly auspicious uh, landmark. And we thought, well, why not do a commentary track on the 50th story from classic Doctor Who? Now, when we actually looked up what that story was, we realised it was The War Games. And then we said, well, we aren't going to be able to do a commentary for every single one of its <laughs> 10 episodes. So we decided to compromise and do a commentary for, I think, probably what is regarded as the most important episode from the War Games, i.e. episode 10, the one where everything happens. So what we're going to present with you today is the Doctor Podcast commentary for episode 10 of the War Games. It's my great pleasure to have James and Tom in the Camp of M with me today to talk about this most important of episodes. Mm, indeed, I've been looking forward to this for some time. It's, it's going to be quite fun just to sit here and watch it, trying to point out all of those pivotal moments to, to the audience. So yeah, really looking forward to this. Perfect, absolutely. So um, it's, it's easy to say that uh, the War Games marks the end of the beginning. It's the last episode in black and white. It's the last Patrick Troughton episode. It's a wonderful, wonderful artefact. Yeah, I'm looking forward to this one. So if you would like to join along with us, and the best way to enjoy this uh, MP3 track is to actually watch the DVD along with us. So if you want to queue up your DVD copies of War Games episode 10, when you hear us say play, press play on your DVD player, and you will be totally synced up with what we're seeing and with what you'll be seeing uh, listening to our commentary track at home. Now, un unlike our uh, normal podcast where we, we edit our responses and take out all our fluffs, <laughs> the beauty about commentary tracks, and I'll say beauty in inverted commas, is that they are completely unedited. Once we press play on our DVD players, whatever we say is there in the episode. That That's one of the features of doing commentary tracks, certainly for us. Um, so uh, we hope you enjoy our foray into uh, commentaries for uh, classic Doctor Who episodes. So when you hear us say play after the countdown, press play on your DVD player and join along in the fun. Three, two, one, play. And, and those incredible title sequences of the uh, Patrick Troughton Doctor, of course, the last time we'll see them. Indeed. Now, mm. I think this is actually the opening of this title sequence is very similar to what we see in a Pertwee title sequence, obviously in colour, and things change a little bit, certainly after you see the uh, logo come rushing at you. But yeah, I think, this is, um, I think this is a fantastic title sequence and certainly quite poignant when you're watching it, knowing it's the last time you'll see Patrick Troughton in the role for an entire episode. Definitely. It is very similar to what they were playing with at, at the beginning of the Pertwee era, like you say, that they were playing around with different ways to use the title. I think during Inferno, you saw a lot of lava and volcanoes and stuff like that during the title sequence, and uh, certainly some of the earlier stories were like that. And uh, you know, this is probably the the beginning of that e experimentation. Mm. And it opens quite well, this particular episode, everything in slow motion, and of course, a, a close-up focus on a TARDIS key that at this moment in time is still a standard Yale key. Yeah, mm. yeah. 
I like how the relationship between the Doctor and Jamie is emphasised in that little scene. You know, the Doctor knows what he needs to do, but of course, as is always the case in uh, the, with the Second Doctor, Jamie is just the final push to help him to achieve it. I'm liking the uh, the, the slow and heavy acting going on here as well, as <laughs> making their way to the console. Brilliant stuff. <laughs> I could, thought that was real slow motion. <laughs> <laughs> I really did. Are you telling me those actors just did that very slowly? <laughs> yes. I, I would say so, yes. One one thing that most stands oh, wow. out for me here is the actual console room, which they have uh, slow mode into. It, it is very, very reminiscent all the way back to the uh, 1963 console room. Yeah. I mean, we, we've, al- we've almost got that wall there behind with the fault locator, yeah. um, which, which was very, very... Um, widely used during the Hartnell era. And we've got a square console room as well and, and a much larger console room, which is, is used to great effect later in the episode where we have the warlord and his uh, troops filing in trying to steal the TARDIS and its technology. Mm. Trev, that was your favourite line just there, actually. Time Lords can live forever barring accidents. Well, one, <laughs> one could take that many, many ways, really. I mean, I mean without getting into a long argument, he, he does talk about we... And it, it's it's interesting that you could refer to it as the race rather than just a person. Mm. So uh, I, I suppose there is a way if you really want to squirm out of it mm. by saying that Time Lords can live for a long time, mm. but as a race we, we have the technology that can ensure our race lives forever. That's an interesting interpretation of that line. It's not, not something I've considered before. I've, I've always thought that that particular line means that Time Lords, provided they don't have an accident, which of course the Doctor does pretty much every time he regenerates, they can have an exceptionally long life. Hmm. That's true, yes. I mean, one could almost say that the Doctor is oversimplifying his lifespan for the benefit of his... Um, I suppose, very young mm. and short lifespan companions because these people he's with will only live for 80 or 90 years. Of course. So compared to the Doctor, he does live forever. Mm. Now, it's it's interesting the shot they just showed before with the uh, TARDIS coming to land on the sea. Mm. Now, one, one might think they've suddenly spent a lot of money for this uh, episode, but you will find there are many scenes in this story which are actually reuses of shots from earlier Troughton episodes and the, the, the one with the TARDIS landing in the sea is actually from Fury from the Deep. Oh, is it really? It is, it is, yes. Oh, well, I didn't know that at all. I I was just thinking, I think perhaps this may have come up in one of our quizzes in the past, where you see the Doctor's TARDIS take off or land vertically, and I was thinking of the Runaway Bride. And is that... Yeah, well, this shot shot we're seeing right now with the TARDIS in space... And, and and the cobwebs comes exactly right, comes from the Web of Fear. So um, we're, we're pretty much in stock footage territory here at the moment with the, many of the things we're seeing on screen. I've, I've never noticed that before. So, two things are just like springing out at me looking at this console room. Can you see on the right-hand side how the randalls don't match up? It's like a photograph wall. Right. <laughs> yes. Um, well, it's true because, I mean, they for, for, for this episode specifically... They had to make the console room bigger. Yeah. Because yeah, yeah. if if you remember many Trouton stories before this set inside the console room, it was a much smaller room. Mm. And they, they, they had to make it larger because they have to accommodate, you know, seven or eight people mm. um, in addition to the TARDIS crew at the end of the episode. And was that a mat on the floor here? Or is that some kind of tarpaulin? Just, yeah, that's, that's, that's part of the 
that's part of the original design. Um, you, can, you can see the wheels oh, really? on, the back, on, the back, on the back of the flat, actually, as well. Um, yeah, it's part of the original design. And you might remember that in, in An Unearthly Child, there was also a, a, a big hexagonal light over the top of the console as well, which uh, mm. I think just, just died a death because it was rather Im- impractical, frankly. <laughs> And I'm sure there's some uh, episodes in the Pertwee era. I mean, uh, Frontier in Space springs to mind as having that hexagonal metal plate on the ground as well. Oh, well, mm. I'm going to have to start um, doing some more commentaries with you two. I've learned so much in the first five minutes already. <laughs> <laughs> oh, here we are. We are on the home planet of the Doctor. Not known as Gallifrey at this stage, of course. That's still, what, five years away mm. at this stage. Is that, yeah, is that, but, is that um, the, one of the Peladon we, stories that shows up? Or no, is it's it, a Time Warrior. Um, it's the, the Time, time Warrior. Gallifrey's mentioned time. for the first time in um, in the Time Warrior. Hmm. Wow. Well, yeah. which, which seems a strange story to mention it, but uh, it is there I'm very glad it was a Robert Holmes but, uh, who decided to script it. I wonder if it was Robert Holmes... Word, whether he actually came up with the word Gallifrey or whether that was something that the production crew imposed. Anyway, I'm uh, I'm digressing. <laughs> I'm getting quite drawn into this now. The, the history of the word is that it's a it's a uh, it's a concatenation of the word Gallimorfrey, which is I think which I'll look up. But yeah, the, the word Gallimorfrey exists in English, but just calling it Gallifrey was uh, the idea just to shorten it down a little bit. Oh, wow. Do you know, it's testament to. Troughton's ability to generate a lead character that now as he's walking so slowly and so dejectedly you know he's beaten and it's, so, it's such a wonderfully tense moment mm. it's fabulous mm. yeah it's, it, it reminds me very much of Aslan's last walk up to the stone table in um, Lion Witch in the mm. Wardrobe just a completely different kind of way the character portrays himself from the remainder of the story it almost you know it has the air of a doomed mm. man there and uh, nothing, nothing has done that to the Doctor in, in any of his previous stories. And, and these, these Time Lord costumes here are by far the best ever seen in Doctor Who. Much better than the high back old collars uh, that we saw in mm. uh, Tom Baker's era. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I, I suppose there's room for both, really, because what we see in stories like The Deadly Assassin are ceremonial collars and, and very ornate type of costumes but these are more judicial robes I suppose because they are um, in the middle of a trial mm. well they did and they have the same kind of high back collars in the trial of a time lord as well I think even Linda Bellingham's Inquisitor that's true had a, yes. a rather large lampshade behind her head she has, yeah she has a version of it definitely definitely mm. speaking of our uh, time lord standing before us at, at least two of them uh, certainly have a very rich Doctor yes. Heritage. Um, if if we look at the uh, guy in the middle with the blonde hair, Bernard Horsfall, yep. he went on to play another Time Lord um, in the nineteen seventy four story, Deadly Assassin, and it's it's a big fan debate as to whether it's actually the same character, oh. whether you can think of this guy <laughs> yeah. as being Chancellor Goth or not. Interesting. I, I love that theory. I love that theory. Um, be interesting as to why he suddenly wanted to. To kill the Doctor in a deadly assassin after having such mm. a um, upstanding role in the uh, Gallifrey community in this story, but yeah, and the and the Time Lord on the right, do we know who that is? Dave, I think. No, Trevor Martin. <laughs> oh, is it really? Sorry, I was being facetious. Trevor <laughs> Martin, of course. Of um, he was one of the stage plays, wasn't he? Yeah, the uh, Seven Keys to Doomsday went on to play uh, the Doctor, yeah. no less. Okay. I think that was like 1973, 74, something like that. I shall have to take your words for that. 
but certainly Trevor Martin definitely appeared in that stage play. And he also, I think, reprised his role, did he not, in the big finish um, version of um, Seven oh, Keys did of he Doomsday. Really? I'm not sure whether oh, I could be getting it completely wrong. As you, as you said at the top of this show, um, all the mistakes and fluffs can't be edited out. So I could have got that <laughs> completely wrong. And one thing I must say, since we're seeing so much time on this gentleman here, Mr. Philip Maddock, is that Genius. not the absolute spitting image of Luke from the Minute Doctor Who podcast? <laughs> Harsh but fair. It, it's. <laughs> In all fairness, it was Luke um, <laughs> who pointed that similarity out. And he's actually done a video podcast of him dressed up as this. Is he the warlord or the war chief? He's the warlord, isn't he? This guy's the warlord. Yeah. Yes. So Luke actually dressed up as the warlord and produced a um, uh, an edition of his podcast as the warlord. It was brilliant. Do you know, that characterization is so incredibly creepy unblinking eyes, staring, defiant, oh, wonderful characterization from Philip Maddock there. Really, really good. Philip Maddock, absolutely. And of course, we've seen Mark Gatiss' Twitter recently, haven't we? He's um, dressed up in a very, very similar uh, costume. Well, I say costume. He's had the same kind of facial hair and he posted a picture of himself on Twitter with the words, the title, the Warlord Returns. And he created a small little amount of Ferrari on the internet because people seem to think he's being quite um, candid in his <laughs> latest role. Um, and of course, Neil Gaiman has um, mentioned that a character within the War Games is going to be returning or is at least inspired by uh, a character in the War Games in his episode in Series 6. And so Very I think Mark Gates knew what he was doing. <laughs> You know, it's, it's nice to see these costumes showing up in Doctor Who for the first time. Um, viewers of the new series might recognise these Time Lord rose, robes from The Sound of Drums uh, and uh, Last of the Time Lords. Is that right? The I think of... they're slightly different. I think you've got the high back collars in Sound of Drums. Um, Last of the Time Lords, I've got to be honest, I can't quite remember, but I think they had similar version of the of, of the um, Deadly Assassin costume almost no it, oh, i'm thinking of the young master as he's staring into the void he's wearing one of those costumes ah i thought for a second you might meant the wetsuits that the guards were no. <laughs> wearing. and i th i think they may have been used in the underwater menace um something in the back of my mind tells me that they were they were not original to this particular story but um can't remember for definite what fascinates me so much about this story is is watching our our three unnamed time lords in this because we have such a radically different depiction of Gallifrey I suppose as we can call it now 30 years later um, and time lord society as a whole because what we're seeing here now is almost godlike creatures and um, certainly Bernard Horsfall does some very um, or one one might say serene hand movements which really give the impression that he's this sort of omnipotent all-seeing being Mm. And um, it, it really flies in the face of what we see, certainly in the Tom Baker era, of what Time Lord society is like. That it's not this all-seeing, all-knowing race, but it's this corrupt, degenerate bunch of people all out for their own ends. Mm. Well, what happens to what, what would happen to your mind if you could live for a thousand years? You surely you'd go insane. And, and I think that's that, that's something that comes out in the Five Doctors again um, when uh, Russell has shown us knowing that immortality is a curse, not a blessing. Um, perhaps that's why the regeneration limit is set at twelve, but that's a that's a different podcast. So, oh, that's right, that's right. I mean, I I don't really see any problem with the difference between the Time Lords in this story mm. and the Time Lords in the future, because I mean, it really to me, it's like 
reading a brochure about a vacation and um, then actually going to the place and experiencing it. To to me here, we're seeing a very, very small part of Gallifreyan society. And then it's only in later stories that we're really seeing even more to do with that planet's history and their people. And, mm. and, And the more we see... In some cases, the more we don't like. So, I mean, I, I really think it could be the same with travel, that you read all this wonderful stuff in the brochures, come and visit Gallifrey. It's a fantastic place to raise your children. But then you get there and find it's full of corrupt beings who, uh, who, who really don't care about anyone else. Well, wow. you know, you, you're right. But can, can I just say, keep an eye on Troughton in this. This is phenomenal. Oh, oh God. Mm. Let me just oh, ask you to a question. Have, have we just seen the warlord killed? Uh, he was uh, not killed. He dematerialized. He never existed. Worse than yeah, worse well, than being one. One might call that killed as well. But anyway, okay. yeah, I was right because you, were, you that was happening just as you were talking about Time Lord society, and I think having that kind of punishment tells you quite a bit about that society. They're quite happy to completely erase people from the timeline, and you know, to a degree, that was used in Series Five, wasn't it? That was just a natural phenomena, though. Whereas this time, these time lords are actually imposing that on a particular individual. So, anyway, yes, Tom. Going back to this particular scene, you're right, and I think we do need to keep an eye on Patrick Troughton as he reacts to all of these uh, past stories. This is a little bit like an older version of David Tennant's farewell, perhaps, except mm. this is much more restrained. Mm. He goes back to say goodbye to all of his monsters so far, as opposed to companions. Well, I think it's 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 the two parts of the second Doctor's character abs- absolutely brought in sharp relief. He's very intelligent. He's quite flippant, but he's also amazingly passionate about what he's talking about, about the things he's encountered. This is the first time that we've got any sense that the Doctor comes from somewhere, what, you know, what his background is, and, you know, this, and things we take for granted now, like, yes, he's out there as a benevolent alien helping, uh, helping to right wrongs. At least the, you know, the anger about the amount of power at the Time Lord's resource and how they could use it, how they should use it, is absolutely brought to, is big demonstrated right here. And look at him, he's, he's, he's incandescently angry here. It's wonderful stuff. It's not hard to be angry against these people that is looking at each other, you know, these these uh, people who are putting the doctor on trial and looking at this doctor like he's an ant. Mm. You know, you see, you, you see these occasional looks between the, uh, uh, what do you call it, holders of the trial, mm. and they're going, oh, this, this, this impotent or this, or this young being that you know doesn't understand Time Lord society, you know, mm. you know, they're but, giving but, these but again, weird, almost it, condescending it, it, looks to each other. We have to put it in human terms, though. Everything that we do is governed by our simple knowledge and the joke that we know that we're going to die. We know we've only got 70 years, and all of our activity, all of our thought is geared around that. If you remove that restriction, then what do you become? Because it's it's certainly not human, and so the slowness, the imperiousness of, of of the Time Lord's reactions... Uh, are kind of written in stone because they don't have to worry about time anymore. So it's a whole different way of existing. Um, but this, but this third time lord here, he almost seems like he's from a different planet because he's um, talking to Jamie and Zoe and saying, "Oh yes, you you, you can go talk with the Doctor. Mm-hmm. Oh yes, it it'll be all right. I'll I'll lower the force field for you and whatever." I mean, he he doesn't mm-hmm. seem very similar to the other two uh, people who are conducting the trial because they're they're serene. Huh. Deliberating, taking their time, yeah. but this, but but it, this guy's, I suppose, you know, to use a vernacular, almost human. 
Well, I think this is quite typical of of, um, of the Tunnel Society as we see it throughout all of Doctor Who, to be honest with you. You have some people, like the Doctor, who are very, very in touch with their human side, if you like. So they haven't lost sense of what's real and what's, um, what their core values are, despite the fact they could potentially live forever, barring accidents. Mm. And the other characters... Uh, within the show who are like that are generally renegades because they don't want to sit there and disappear up their own um, uh, vernacular really yes they want to experience life experience the universe the Rani the master all the same even if they have you know machinations of um, you know desires to to rule the universe mm. um, they're still not content with the limitations now what are these um, so I think these, that's interesting. these sulfur pit things I mean I'm, I'm sort they're of they're thinking... pits of sulfur <laughs> I, I think that's where Time Lords are loomed. There you oh, go. I thought booked by Callan. <laughs> but it's fun to mention it because I know some people out there who, who read those books in the 90s will be going, ah, Trev, you know your books. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so here we have it, the final end. And that's it. After all of this time, after all of the black and white adventures, there's no getting out of this one, guys. It is the end. Goodbye. We can just, we can just no, we can't. There's more of them than there are. See, this is the thing. The Doctor knows that ultimately he's a Time Lord. And no matter what situation he gets into, or with a few exceptions, he is a Time Lord. He can always get away. Um, But this time, nah. This is against the other Time Lords. He's trapped. He's got to stop fighting. Interesting bit of wig going on there with... um Wendy Padbury, that hairpiece is kind of obvious looking at it like that. And I wonder if Patrick Troughton's actually wearing a wig as well, because his hair seems to be a different shape than it normally is. I'm being Janet Fielding on a commentary going on about people's wigs. Oh, You're talking about <laughs> hair, yeah. I don't think we've gone there before on the Doctor Who podcast, so... Oh, but it's funny, guys, actually, because you, you, you point that out... I think there's a the... reason for Wendy's, because she has to shoot the scene very soon <laughs> from, like, 18 months ago where she's on the wheel. So she has to have the hairstyle yeah. she had... When she joined the TARDIS crew, Slightly so slipping there's probably again, a reason for that. Yeah. But, but um, the point is, when we were talking about hair, there, that's when a doctor is having his final conversation with Jamie and Zoe, and they're saying, mm. "Are we going to see each other again, etc." Mm. And you know, that's that is incredibly poignant, particularly when you think about it with the benefit of hindsight from the five doctors and possibly the two doctors as well. And this is the moment, of course, specially shot film here um, mm. with. Um, the actress whose name completely slips my mind from the wheel in space. Mm. Yep, 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 yep. yep. Oh, and well, you know, again, Big Finish has been really good with this because I think it's uh, Shades of Grey that was released recently. We're talking about um, where, yes. where Zoe's. Yes, indeed. Uh, Zoe's getting her memories of the Doctor back, and of course we've had the Fraser Hines uh, trilogy recently from Big Finish Two, where he's uh, where, where this lock, which was imposed on their memories by the Time Lords, is, is suddenly lifted. Um, for, for anyone who mm. wants to try and well, we, we, one of the things we can talk about here as, as well is the is season six B, but we'll probably start that conversation in a few minutes as the as the titles <laughs> roll. Um, but yeah, yeah, here, yeah. So here we have Jamie, uh, and interestingly enough. When, when we next see Jamie on screen, he knows the Doctor's a Time Lord. So whatever, so whatever happens to him, however that thing in the Two Doctors goes on, he's it's yeah. after this point. Mm. He did oh, look good in that, the kill, that, didn't he? That, that all ties into Six B. I mean, I mean, well, we we only have a few minutes left, Tom. So perhaps we should mention Season Six B very briefly. Okay. Well, one of the things that uh, we're about to see is the Doctor, just as his sentence is read out. Uh, is given the choice of faces, one of whom looks a little bit like Christopher Eccleston, but we'll point that out when it comes up. Um, and the Doctor is sent whirling away through time and space. However, uh, and, the ne- and the next scene we see chronologically as far as the transmission of Doctor Who is concerned is 
uh, a man falling out the front of the TARDIS, uh, looking at, who looks very much like John Pertwee. Now, there is, unfortunately, or fortunately, unfortunately, between the end of the war games, the beginning of Spearhead from Space, the continuity for the two Doctors, the three Doctors, and the five Doctors is very, very difficult to work out because, as we say, Jamie's with the Doctor and the two Doctors, and he knows he's a Time Lord, and so on and so forth. So fans have come up with this idea of Season 6B, which takes place between the end of the War Games and the beginning of Spearhead from Space. Um, so, here we, so here we have the Doctor being sentenced. But between him disappearing, there's an idea that the Celestial Intervention Agency, the CIA, uh, has been formed, plucks the Doctor away from, his, uh, from being transported directly to Earth and sends him to work for them. Hence, the Fourth Doctor's complaints and the Sixth Doctor's complaints about being a, uh, being a cat's paw of the Time Lords because it's happened before and fans would have us believe that Season 6B, which is about to start <laughs> at the end of these titles, uh, is when all of these things take place. Is that, a, is, that a, is, that a, is that a concise uh, yes. definition? I think that's pretty concise, yes. I think that's Perfect. probably the most concise description of 6B I've ever heard. And uh, I, think, <laughs> I, think it, I think it's interesting because I think season 6B is probably the best attempt by fans to try and retcon something into the series that was just missed. There's your Christopher Eccleston shot there, Tom. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you're right, it's very, very similar. It's Christopher Eccleston with a bit of hair. So, <laughs> but I mean, going back to where um, Jamie and Victoria, Jamie and Victoria, Jamie and Zoe are sent back and their memories are, are wiped. We see that plot device used again in a new series episode. Well, at the end of Donna Noble's series, so end of series four. Oh. And again, mm. people seem to think that was uh, a bit of a steal, if you like, from this story. And what's worse than death? Well, never remembering your travels with a doctor in the first place. And that's it. You're going to say McCoy, McCoy acting. I am. <laughs> you know exactly what I'm saying. And here we have Androzani. We have Davison regenerating with the floating uh, faces around his um, around the main character. So you can see where oh. you know future incarnations and regenerations have drawn their inspiration from here. All we need is Adric to start circling now. <laughs> yes, a short man with a mop of dark hair, but there we go. And off there he goes. Go. The first time I saw this, I was so heartbroken because that's it. After all those travels, after all those battles, that's it. He's been caught. But apparently, yeah. just as this starts to happen, the CIA get involved and drag mm. him away from this moment and send him to work for, as we say, season 6B. Oh, it's heartbreaking. The little doctor's dying. It is. But he is a jokester to the end, really, because I mean, one of the last lines he says as he's spinning away, he says, you know, stop it, you're making me giddy. I mean, <laughs> it's a, it, it, a perfect Troughton all the way to the end. It's oh, absolutely beautiful. Absolutely. Oh, the, wow. the, the first time I saw that, I had absolutely no idea that uh, Troughton wasn't actually going to regenerate into um, John Pertwee, because it was the last regeneration I ever saw. Um, and, I was, yeah. and so yes I was kind of had a lump in my throat but I was always very, also very very disappointed because I wanted to see the uh, transformation into John Pertwee and I felt oh I've been deprived <laughs> so <laughs> I, I felt sad for a number of reasons <laughs> 